Hello and welcome to All Things Women's Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud. Now, I'm a board-certified obstetrician, gynecologist, a husband, a father, a a grandfather, a small business owner, a Catholic. I'm I'm a lot of things. But right now on this show, I'm your host as we discuss all things women's health, and we'll always do it from an authentically Catholic perspective. Whether it's childbirth to infertility or pregnancy loss to menopause, homeschooling, or personal trainers, if it involves women and their health, it's on the agenda for this show. Joining me today is my good friend and colleague, Hallie Greider, childbirth educator, certified doula, and co-founder and executive director of Birth Matters, the region's premier childbirth education company. Now, having done this work for more than 25 years, I can attest that there is a marked difference between what I would call prepared versus unprepared pregnancy, labor, childbirth, and the postpartum period. I've often said that I can walk into a family's room in labor, and by the expression on the husband's face, I can tell if they've been to birth matters or not. It's a dramatic difference, trust me. So on this episode, we're going to unwrap what it means to actually prepare for pregnancy, labor, childbirth, and the postpartum period. Why should you invest your time and money, in some cases, in something that's designed to work just fine without you? What are the elements of a great preparation program? How do you select from the many programs available? And we, as husbands, we like to know these things. Why should we pay for birth classes when the hospital offers something free? So get comfortable as we get to know a lot more about Hallie Greider, prepared childbirth, and much, much more. We'll be right back with all things women's health. Well, as I said earlier, I'm joined today by my good friend, Hallie Greider. Hallie is a co-founder and executive director of Birth Matters. She's a mother. She's a teacher. She's oh, she's all kinds of things. Uh, but today she's here to talk to us about all things childbirth. So Hallie, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, let's start with, you know, filling listeners in. I know a lot about you, and most of the people in our practice know a lot about you, but some of our listeners may not. So let's start with the story of you. I actually grew up here in the Fort Wayne, Indiana area and fell in love. Ironically, the start of my story into childbirth is Spanish. And I (laughs) fell fell in love with with Spanish and decided to become a a teacher of Spanish. And I did my undergraduate work at NYU. I moved to the city to be able to speak more Spanish. Mm -hmm. I did my graduate work at Columbia and started teaching and got to teach in schools in New York City at a high school level and just loved it. And then I got pregnant with my first child. And that birth experience really changed everything for me. I I tell people all the time in my classes that it changes you, you know, no matter what the outcome, no matter what the experience, that it's just transformative. There's kind of a time before childbirth and after childbirth in a family. And it really impacted me in a deep, deep way. And I felt really lucky to have gotten the quality childbirth education that I did. I happened to have lived, ironically, a block away from a freestanding birth center (laughs) and walked by there many times and decided to take their classes because it was convenient and then ended up 
just really seeing the value of that breadth and depth of education, the quality of everything they taught me, the things I unlearned and relearned about my body, about childbirth. And I wanted to become a childbirth educator. And so after that birth of my first child, I worked diligently to do that. And once you fall in love with education of childbirth, you want to be around childbirth. Mm. So I became a certified labor support doula, did that for a long time, and then returned to Indiana about 12 years ago or so to start Birth Matters. Mm. So, um, wow, what a journey. So tell us, uh, you know, you said you, you, you had your first child and that was changing. So, so what was the before and the after? What was the... Mm. What was what changed after that first birth? My father is a physician, mm. and I grew up in a home that obviously respected physicians and medical care, and that was part of just the environment. And I had an, just a, I learned things that I didn't know I'd learned about what to expect and how things go. And I really was living in a box and limited in my view. And so the education that I got at the birth center was to step outside the box. I didn't even know there was outside the box. And so I, for example, I didn't think that I would ever choose to give birth or you could give birth without an epidural. <laughs> I didn't think, who does that? You don't do that. Nobody does that. And I learned through my education that it's a choice. And a lot of people do for a lot of different reasons. And I remember going into, um, to the birth center for a consultation about whether I was going to actually give birth there. And I sat through their orientation, which you guys do all the time. Yeah. And I walked back home and came back literally the next day to talk to one of the midwives. And I said, how does somebody know they can do this? <laughs> and she said, you, you don't necessarily know you can do this, but you feel right about it. It feels mm -hmm. like a good place. You feel supported. You feel educated. And then we do, you know, we step into the unknown together. So you didn't go into that first labor or first pregnancy with sort of preconceived pun intended ideas about I want a natural unmedicated out of hospital birth that wasn't your plan to begin with no it was not I went my care up until that point was with a midwife because I had some friends that were with midwives and in right. New York City there were a lot of options but she was based in a hospital yeah. and so I didn't really have any preconceived notions about out of hospital birth even really being I almost want to say legitimate in terms of how I grew up <laughs> right yeah, it's fascinating. You know, about half the women who give birth at Holy Family Birth Center are first-time moms. And I always find their stories particularly amazing for that reason. How do you know? What is it you've got going on inside you that says, yeah, I think I could do this? You've never done it. You're absolutely clueless about what it entails. And yet, for whatever reason, women like you decide, yeah, I'm pretty sure I could do that. It sounds like fun. It really cannot happen by one's self. Because I not only did I need to unlearn, like I said, which I've now incorporated into my childbirth classes, I needed to unlearn or at least examine the myths versus realities that our culture teaches families right. without really knowing. I tell people all the time, where do these stories, where do these impressions, if you coming to my class as a first time parent, you've never been at a birth before, but yet you can tell me what it looks like, sounds like, where does that come from? Yeah. It comes from media, it comes from movies, it comes from family stories. Right. And so much of media is just all of media is built around entertainment. And so we have been given a narrative that are built around entertainment that isn't actually what birth can be like. Yeah, you remind me, uh, and physicians are part of that culture. But, you know, I like to tell people, imagine just for a second, the last birth you saw on TV. 
uh, a Hollywood version of birth. And it's always horrific. You know, it's always a screaming, out-of-control woman. And if there's a man there, they look like a buffoon. And it's usually a fire drill of sorts. And that's the movie that's playing in people's head, I think, all the time. That's one of the first questions that I do in my first class. After we do introductions, as I say, tell me what you see about birth. Tell And literally I say, tell me the movie in your mind. (laughs) Because I want them to play it out. And we do a brainstorm. We put it on the board and we dissect it. And some things are legitimately part of childbirth. They just need to be seen in a different context. Mm. Some things are completely, as you say, fire drill, emergent, entertainment-based things that we have to undo and kind of unplug from our default. Amazing how important culture is in our perception, right? That's another whole show, I guess. So you mentioned birth matters, and I talked about it in in the intro segment, but what is exactly birth matters? It is an organization that I actually co-created with my sister, who for many years was a birth doula and an educator alongside me and has since moved on to do other things. And we wanted to bring the kind of education. Ironically, she and I were pregnant with our first at the same time, and we took that same class in New York City at the same time. So we knew inherently what that education was like, and we knew it was lacking in this area in our on our home state. So I came back with the focus to to create a series of classes for families. And, and really, that's what we did. We do prenatal classes primarily now because there's, since I've arrived back in Fort Wayne, there's a lot of different organizations that have stepped into little niche things like postpartum mom support, postpartum depression support, mm. counseling. Um, we used to do those kinds of things. Breastfeeding groups for our postpartum. We used to do those types of things. But really, it's um, I'm happy to hand those things off to the people who make that their exp- area of expertise and spend all their time dedicating themselves to that work. So we focus more now really on the prenatal education. So you're an, an education company, you might say. Sure. And um, would you say there's some kind of overreaching philosophy or approach, mm-hmm. uh, for lack of a better word, for birth matters? Yes. I got asked all the time when I first came back to Indiana because in-hospital childbirth class was really the only option at that point, and nobody really understood people who taught out of hospital. So in situations... Now, let me stop you. So you mean classes taught in the hospital for birth in the hospital, right? Yeah. When you say... (laughs) I guess that's true, because my classes are really for any birth environment. But yes, that really when I came back, those were the only classes that were really happening for that families kind of say, well, yeah, got to take a class. And what was that class? It was the hospital class. And I mean, it's probably fair to say that's generally the case across the country. I would agree. You know, hospitals offer classes for the people coming to their hospital. Right. That's Um, true. so, So you got interested in education regardless of environment. I did. I I really felt that making classes available to everyone was essential and that there was more community involved in teaching to families no matter what their birth environment choice. So teaching a hospital family next to a birth center family next to a home birth family is, that is my jam. Mm. I love that. (laughs) I feel like they learn from each other. We can demystify things. Um, And the, the key of doing that successfully, though, is that I can truly respect each and every one of them where they are. I do not come at them with any sort of judgment or pitting against each other. We create a harmonious environment where people can sit next to each other with different beliefs or different places where they feel safe, and we educate together. So 
you know, an overreaching philosophy might say you you're interested in all comers in education, period. But what would you say if you had to was an overreaching philosophy about birth, regardless of location? I read a long time ago um, some work from Dr. Martin Wagner, who was um, a perinatologist, and he worked with the World Health Organization, and he did a lot of passionate work with women and children's health. And his quote that's actually on all my promotional materials is that choice without full information is no choice. Oh, nice. And when I read that, I was transformed. And I feel like that applies to everyone particularly when you're deciding about your birth environment and and you you know have different plans and different agendas and different visions for everything and um and that really drives my my teaching philosophy it's sort of like informed consent which is a buzz phrase in medicine but if i'm going to do surgery on you and i say here's the surgery i'm going to do is that okay and you say yes that's hardly informed consent. It's just consent, <laughs> but it's anything but informed. <laughs> Correct. You've got to understand what you're saying yes to or the yes is meaningless. Absolutely. And yeah. we talk a lot about that. I mean, I teach families who are out of hospital birth. They're looking for a very low interventive experience and the possibilities that they might transfer. Uh, and then I have families who are birthing in the hospital that are also looking for a low interventive experience. Mm. And they both need the same skills to navigate the decision-making process, to understand the circumstances of their labor once it actually unfolds, and be prepared to take in the conversation with all the jargon and content and material that you have to make, you know, understand to decide, and then make their best decision. Well, I think you've You've probably already answered the question, but you know, you're looking at a family, they're pregnant, they're thinking about birth. Why should they invest in, in preparation? Or, or maybe we should say, why should they invest in preparation beyond just maybe sort of the free class taught in the hospital? I, I don't want to completely discount the hospital classes because mm -hmm. I, I have seen educators that do a good job there. Sure. But I do feel the scales tip more towards the likelihood that they are not focused on choice. They're not always focused on lifting up the veil and letting families truly understand uh, what, what those options are and when they happen. And they can teach families how to be a good patient Mm. more than maybe they're teaching them how to navigate. And make choices. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've often said, and again, as you pointed out, no uh, no disrespect to hospital-based instruction, but it's when I've listened to those classes through the years, I've often thought of the safety briefing on an airplane. You know, <laughs> sort of a, here's where the snacks are, here's where the bathroom is, here's some of the safety things, have yeah. a nice flight. Yeah. What tells me the most about that, what impacts me and keeps me aware of that the most is that I have families who will come to my classes having already had a birth and having already had that education. And they've chosen to come to Birth Matters and take classes for a subsequent pregnancy and birth because they feel they didn't get what they needed. Mm. And that's really one of my one of my major issues is my, my hope would be that there would be no family who after birth experience says, why didn't anybody tell me that? <laughs> and that's really also at the forefront of my teaching is to try and give them as much preloading content so that they're going to walk away because, you know, complications happen, interventions happen, birth is unknowable, unpredictable mm -hmm. and uncontrollable. And so I'm working with two things at the same time. 
a family that has a vision for what they'd like to do and experience for the birth of their child and something that we cannot know, predict, or plan or control. Mm -hmm. So I have to, I have to help them understand that we're going to prepare. I tell families sometimes, you know, what, what I don't want you to know, you're not going to walk out of class knowing how you're going to do it. I want you to walk out of class knowing that you can do it. And how it happens is not something that you're going to, I can't, if I could give you that, (laughs) I would be a wealthy woman. But um, it's not so much about the how. I mean, we do the how, but when we're, you know, what we're talking about here is just that, that duality of empowering families to, I also say sometimes, you know, it's like running a marathon. People always use birth with a marathon analogy. And the difference between the marathon and birth is that with the marathon, you know, or the finish line is. <laughs> and we're going to be standing there in birth saying, just keep going. Yeah. And you're going to say, well, how long? But we don't, don't know. No. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, but, you know, to be a little bit of a devil's advocate, why why prepare it all? This thing is going to happen with or without your participation. You could, you could try to stop it all you like, but birth is going to happen. Every pregnancy ends. So why prepare for something that you can't control? I think we would all say, as I mentioned in my introduction, that it's transformative. Mm. And the more that we're prepared for things, the more we understand things, the more positively that experience can be experienced. So I find it really important. This question's kind of best answered if we start to veer into the world of complications or interventions or things that go off of that ideal low interventive kind of plan. If a family has something complication-wise that pushes that birth in that direction, it's really important for them to understand what's happening, why it's happening, because if we don't prepare them with that knowledge and they're not aware, I really, there's I mean, statistics and scientific data that's showing us just how much that impacts their postpartum mental health, emotional right. health. And we talk much more about postpartum depression and things today than we ever have, which is fantastic. But I do think that this connects to that, the importance of planning, the importance of preparing, um, even, even for any... For any kind of birth, but particularly we're setting up families to understand why and how, because the more they know, the more they are, I think, prepared to move into parenthood from a empowered place. It's funny. I'm I'm thinking about a discussion I had when I hear you say that a long time ago with a colleague who said, "Well, people don't come into the hospital and say, here's how I want my gallbladder done.' They come in and say, yes, you can take my gallbladder out.'" Um, so why should they have those feelings about how they want their birth to go? Um, and for years, it's, I struggled to come up with a decent answer to that. But, you know, in my ripe old age, I think the answer to that is because the two have absolutely nothing to do with each other. Mm. When you have your gallbladder out, you're ill. You have a disease. You're sick. And you need a disease organ removed. Um, you might feel that way about your baby towards the end of pregnancy. But the reality is this is a volunteer, so to speak, natural process that you as the health system, you might say, are being asked to participate in. That's not true of a gallbladder or an appendicitis, right? So true. There is amazing work by Penny Simkin and I believe other researchers that worked alongside her that talk about how women remember how they were made to feel at childbirth years and years down the road, even in some components, if I'm recalling this correctly, into the places of like elderly care times, they were Mm. still able to remember how they were made to feel and some of those details Mm. survive in their in their mind. And so 
not only are we talking about the birth experience being important for the immediate postpartum, but we're talking about that transition into parenthood. Mm -hmm. And then the way that the family, both women and, you know, mother and father feel down the road the whole rest of their lives. Yeah, you referenced the postpartum period. And we've had uh, a good friend and colleague, Amber Todd, on this podcast, who does a lot of work with postpartum depression. And she'll talk about really bona fide post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, that starts with labor. Um, and sadly, it often starts with a labor that went badly for medical reasons, but yet it was handled in such a way that the patient was devastated by it. And that devastation doesn't just go away because her baby's okay. No. And I really do wish that we could work towards incorporating more awareness for providers about the impact of their words, the impact of their tone, mm. what it means to the family. I give you an example. I was at a birth as a birth doula once and a woman was just really working hard and, and, you know, hitting the wall and struggling with different things. And it was a lot of work for her. And it was time for her to decide about having an internal exam. She wanted to know where she was. So she asked her provider to do a check and the provider inserted their fingers and sat and, and you can't see me, but they tilted their head and they made one sound and it was this. And that was it. <laughs> they had their fingers inside of her. They were <laughs> estimating things. It was representative of so much more. And they just tipped their head and clicked their mouth. And she was done. She was done. The wind was taken out of her sails. Yeah. Any chance that we had to kind of revive her or regroup her was, was not possible. You know, my version of that story is when I heard um, an attending when I was in residency say to a woman about the C-section they were about to have, your baby is just too big for you. Okay. And then it was followed with, you should have just married a smaller man. Oh. Uh, and then, you know, in that moment, just like you described, not only was she failing at birth, she had failed at spouse selection. <laughs> <laughs> it was her fault that the baby wouldn't fit out of her pelvis. Yeah. Had she only chosen, you know, a, a smaller man to, to marry, everything would have been fine. And, and of course, we know that both of those people in those examples had no intent to cause no. harm, but they could have caused irreparable harm. Absolutely. Yeah. I just don't think providers understand. And, and doulas do, for the most part, because that's the work, the passion that brings them there and the awareness that brings them there. And many times, I mean, many times there are midwives who do and obstetricians who do. So I really, I blanket that mm. across everything. But I just think for the general group of workers who care for women and families in pregnancy and birth, all of us need to be continuing on that education of how much our words mean. Yeah. If we do a top takeaway, we should probably make one of them words matter. Yeah. And, yeah. Birth matters, words matter. Yeah. I think <laughs> about um, a good friend of both of ours, uh, Rhoda Boffman of Agape who, when I met her in my early years, um, she taught me more about birth than I think any of my professors ever could have. But I was about to examine a patient of hers, and I, I put a glove on in the room, and Rhoda said, well, it looks like you're about to do an exam. And I thought, yep, that's exactly right. And I probably should have said that before I put my glove on. Correct. And, uh, you know, she put me in my place. She was so gently and kindly, but educated me in such a way that yeah. all I needed to do was just say what, what I'm thinking. That's right. Instead of being silent. And those words would have put the patient at ease. Yeah. I feel like some, some of that comes with maturity. Mm. I mean, I don't know that you could have 
maybe you did have that in classes when you were training and learning. Maybe people talked about it, but you were so focused on the medical components and the hierarchy yeah. of what your job was going to be, which was the medical care of women and babies, that you didn't hear it. And yeah. so that's why I feel like a moment like that is fantastic because you were ready to receive it and and heard it in the right way. I think families uh, and providers, for that matter, that are like us in the sense that very interested in the patient experience, the discussion can get waylaid because you're thinking about the patient experience um, with my gallbladder or with my appendix and was the room service good and were the rooms pretty that's not what we're talking about with birth experience because, again, that's a sick model. This is a non-sick model. This is more or less an experience of, you know, the culmination of my life as a woman has come to this very moment. Yeah, the experience matters. Yeah. Uh, it matters more than the cosmetics of it matter. Absolutely. And I do believe, I know it takes us off a little bit, but I do believe that we can create experiences that are positive that for a woman to feel and a father to feel the way you just described, even when there are things that weren't on their birth plan. Oh, that is critical. The words that we use, the environment, you mentioned in, informed consent and refusal, those are at the core for how a family can, and if you take it all the way to the end of that, uh, have a cesarean delivery, for example, mm. where they were playing an out-of-hospital birth and can walk away feeling very positively about that experience. It all comes down to what you're talking about. Well, I know you and I have both encountered this statement before but uh, and struggle with it, but how do you respond to when um, a patient is trying to express w what she and her husband prefer and want done and the healthcare professional says something along the lines of, well, of course, what we really want is a healthy mom and baby. Mm. Hopefully, we've gotten to talk to that family beforehand. The conversation around that needs to start in that prenatal education class because mm. you need as a family to learn who you're working with. You need to know what their defaults are, what their standards of care are, what they're comfortable with, mm. what they what they believe because when you're in labor and birth, you are vulnerable to your core. And that's not the time to realize that you don't have a harmonious relationship with who you're working with, or that there's some type of revelatory experience where you just didn't ask the right questions or understand who they were. I have a lot of women who will say, oh, this is just my gynecologist, so I'm just going to go to him or her right. for my obstetrician care. Yeah. Say, no, 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 no. Just because they're the perfect one for that job doesn't mean they're the ones that you're going to enmesh with in childbirth. Because it seems to me in a statement like that, they're saying that you as the mother have somehow forgotten that and need to be reminded, oh, which could be rather insulting. No, my sarcastic answer to that is really, do you think that I've worked this hard <laughs> to get pregnant? Many people work very hard to be in that position and gone through pregnancy and given up what I've given <laughs> to now do something yeah. detrimental? I mean, really, that's my goal here. Yeah, so healthcare <laughs> providers, if you happen to be listening to us, if nothing else, mm. please never, ever say that again. No, don't say that. <laughs> I mean, I... I I think also that comes down to in the moment if it's happening and they're in that experience is the kind of support that a laboring mom has around her. You yeah. know, the hope that that we've encouraged them and educated them to put into place the support team that's mm. going to help her in that moment. Hopefully, if it's not emergent, slow it down, have a conversation, back it up, ask mm. some questions, try to get back into that informed consent model. Um, yeah, I mean, I hope that that's... Because really... 
if that's not in place, it's not going to end up going well for that family. It's it's going to end up going according to the agenda. I know it's a strong word, but mm. the agenda of the provider that's dangling that kind of statement. Now, to to back up maybe just a little bit, you mentioned birth doula or support doula a few mm. minutes ago. Let's talk to listeners about that. It's a strange word, D-O-U-L-A. Mm-hmm. What exactly is a doula? Those are typically women who have had uh, education about childbirth, about all types of childbirth. They have an extensive process for the most part. I mean, the, the word can be used for general support and service of women in labor. But in our kind of modern culture, most women pursue some type of education and then certification in that process um, to be a, a professional, basically support person for a laboring mom and her partner. And so what does that what does that look like in, ge- in a general sense? It in my definition means getting to know the family prenatally, spending time with them, learning about their preferences. If they've had education like something at Birth Matters, then they're going to already be ready for conversations about their vision and their birth plan. If not, there's education that's involved in that relationship early on. And then it's being that information, physical, emotional support person throughout the end parts of pregnancy and then into labor. They spend time um, coming in late early labor. They'll come to homes. They'll come to the birth location. And then they're present throughout the entire labor and birth experience and into the early hours of postpartum. Now, would you say, my words, not yours, but in some ways a, dur- a doula's job is to help the family figure out what it is they want um, you've maybe taught them about a thousand options. Mm-hmm. Now they have a giant menu. Mm. Now the doula would be very good in many cases at saying, given all of those things, what's important to you and why? Yes. Um, you said you wanted to not drink water, but yet you're drinking water. So do you, <laughs> which one of those do you want? Um, let me help you reason through that. Mm-hmm. And then once those preferences are established, I, the, the doulas that I that I've experienced are very good at then helping the patient remember that's what you wanted. Yes, uh, this is the direction you said you wanted to go. Yes, there is a really clear scope of practice for doulas that is a professional scope of practice where you are not doing anything medical. You're not speaking on behalf of clients, and the way you phrase that is ideal. They're reminding families. Mm. They're doing a rota did for you. They're getting ready to put on a glove. Do you want to talk to them about what that's going to be? What they're doing? <laughs> Yeah. So, and then um, in completeness, there are sort of specialty doulas, right? There are some that just do postpartum work, even some doulas that just work around pregnancy loss, miscarriage, stillbirth, and other things. There Speak are. Speak to that some. Yeah. And that's a really great point, which when you're looking for a doula, you can hone in on someone who has a broad range of those skills. There are trainings that are for bereavement, for loss, for just for prenatal and birth doulas. And some of them then, which I feel like is a beautiful relationship, connect with and work with postpartum doulas. So you seamlessly have met the postpartum doula during pregnancy and you roll right into knowing who they are and having them come and support your family after the birth. So yeah, you have a wide range of people who have different niche skills. There's also placenta encapsulation. So Mm -hmm. some doulas do that as an ancillary service and other women would be able to be hired individually for that. Is there kind of the um, is there is it the ideal birth family uh, client, so to speak, that ought to pursue a doula's work, or is it a good idea for anyone to consider whether you're home birth, birth center birth, hospital birth? Does it matter? I don't think so. I think it's 
for everyone. And it's also for the dads. We haven't said too much about that, but it mm. really is. We say family, and when we mean that. I know yeah. you mean that, and I mean that as well. It really is for the family unit. I'll tell you an example. When I was a doula in New York City, I had a woman who hired me, and she didn't want her partner in the room. He was not going to plan to be there, <laughs> which for me as a doula was surprising. Oh, okay. She wasn't going to breastfeed. That was not her plan. Uh-huh. Um, she had other specific nuances. She wanted pain medication as early as she could get it. And those traditionally don't align with people who typically <laughs> look for doulas. Yeah. But it, I, I'm going to tear up. I went back and saw her at her postpartum visit. And she said to me, this has been the best experience of my life. This has been an unexpected <laughs> joy of transitioning into motherhood. And the dad was there and she was there. And it, I thought to myself, it didn't check the boxes of anything I had ever seen before about why someone would want a doula. But when I walked away and thought I was a part of creating a positive family dynamic and relationship, mm. I I felt good about it. And that doesn't really matter place or type or circumstance of birth. Um, I've, I've certainly had doulas provide amazing service at a planned C-section. Yes. Uh, because they were with the woman and her family before the birth, during the birth in many cases, and especially after the birth. Yeah. Um, to help with some of the unique problems related yeah. to post-C-section moms. So really, I think in answer to my own question, I would say anybody is a potential good candidate for a doula services. I think so. I really do feel like it just helps create the the empowered feeling, the positive feeling, the understanding that then rolls into parenthood. Mm, nice. How do you, and we'll talk about this for other providers as well, but since we're on doulas for the moment, how do you pick a doula? Many people have never even heard this word, so now they know about it and they yeah. think, that sounds like a nice idea for me. Yeah. How do you find a doula? I would probably start looking, well, you can pick up doula organizations that are certifying and you can Google up places like Dona and Kappa and different um, birthing from within. There are lots of certifying organizations. I would probably, and but then you can be hit or miss because you might not be picking a place that certifies doulas who are close to you. I tend to tell people to reach out to the midwives in your area. Mm. I really do feel like they can help clue you into either doula organizations or individual people that you can start looking so you're not reinventing the wheel, kind of combing in, through. in general, it's probably fair to say that the natural birth community, wherever you are, mm-hmm. is going to be pretty dialed in yeah. to doula services. Yeah. And to be able to give you a recommendation for where you want to start. And that's important to say, I'm glad you did, which means you can be playing a hospital birth and still yeah. want to have a doula. And so it's not about changing your mind on your birth location. Yeah. It's about those are the people that are probably dialed in. And I know we'll talk about this with providers more, but um, there's certainly a chemistry phenomenon because I've seen doulas that I know and like and think they're phenomenal. And then I've seen them at a birth where I'm attending and it was clear that the relationship was not going as planned. Mm-hmm. It just meant that chemistry was wrong. Right. So you have to, you have to pick. You, you do. Know. I think that it's good to start off with some organizations will do kind of a speed dating event where you get to <laughs> hop around to different tables for a short yeah. period of time, get to meet them face to face. Many of them are now putting up photographs and bios. Every doula that I know personally is willing to have a phone mm. conversation or a Zoom conversation. And I would recommend that families do a broad range of those kinds of conversations just to see about availability ability to ask doulas to share their vision of practice, any maybe paperwork they have to sort of get a sense of what the doula is like, and then whittle it down to your favorite two or three and meet them in person. Mm. And have any doula that I know will meet a family for coffee for free. That's really, it's, I mean, doula work is really a calling. 
they don't do it for for glorification, for money, for, you know, it yeah. helps their family probably financially for sure, but it's not the reason they're out there. Yeah. And really the amazing doulas that I know also are most focused on exactly what you said, which is helping a family find the person that fits their, mm. their dynamic. And so, you know, when you sit in a speeding speed date event when they're sitting next to so-and-so and I'm on the other side, if they pick that doula, I'm so happy for them because that's really the person that they were meant to be with. I think if I were going to advise someone interviewing doulas, I would do two questions. Convince me why I need a doula mm-hmm. and convince me if I do, why it should be you. Mm, there you <laughs> uh, go. And it should be a pretty easy question that should be self-evident if the chemistry is there. Yeah. You know, and doulas think. are for dads too. That's mm-hmm. really important. A good doula is focused on the whole family unit. And part of the prenatal education and communication looks at the father and says, what, what are your roles? What do you see me doing? How do you see me being a part of this team? Mm-hmm. Um, some dads want more hands-on support from doulas. Some dads want less. So. I Think, that sounds like a good bumper sticker. Doulas are for dads. Like, <laughs> as a dad, I like the sound. Dads and doulas. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's fair to say in your classes, you're teaching about choices and helping people build a menu. Doulas are on that menu as things that you're teaching about um, that families should consider as an option. Yeah. Like any birth choice, yeah. to have or not to have a doula would be on that list. Yes. Well, what do you think, given your educational role? is really the the most important thing to convey to families that are considering their birth preferences? I think that I would center that on a couple of different prongs. Number one, making sure that they are with a provider that they trust and that they have a a really harmonious foundational relationship with. Mm. You want to know that if the rubber meets the road and things begin to unfold that are outside the typical, healthy, uncomplicated situation, that if they look at you and say, I really think we need to talk about this, that you believe them. I think it's very important. That's the foundation of that trust relationship is that you have that good, you've asked those questions Mm -hmm. prenatally and you're feeling really good about the answers. I also because think in the midst of an emergency is not the time to be figuring. No, that you're not out. going to. Right. We yeah. talk about emergent communication being very different than you know that is not a lot of informed consent type of things. That's when people move fast, and I say you want them to move fast. You don't want that long conversation in an emergent situation. So it's that it's that trust that says if we need to consider something or something starts to happen that you you believe them. Yeah, that's really critical because I've seen providers who. Do it for the wrong reasons. I like the I like the concept of trust takes repeated behavior over time. Mm-hmm. So the emphasis is on time. It, yeah. d- it just doesn't happen instantly. No. There's got to be some repeated behavior to develop right. that. So finding the right provider that you yeah. can trust. That you can trust. And I would also say then forming your well education for yourself. Um, so you're putting the provider in, in the role and feeling confident with that. You're getting your own prenatal education. So you are an informed partner in that experience and can contribute and analyze and decide things from a place of knowing. And then I would say forming your birth team, which is really just comprehensive, all the things we've said, but Mm -hmm. you really have to bring, I tell people, you know, if you have a great nurse, 
that people say, well, what about the nurse or the midwife? And I'm saying, mm, they're not really part of your birth team. <laughs> they're the icing on the cake, but you have to come with the cake. Mm. You have to come with the people that are going to be there breath after breath, contraction after contraction, and you need to have that team come in the door with you. So I feel like when you have the team and the relationship with the provider and the education, you're putting yourself in a position where you're really prepared to, to navigate that unknown. What, what do you find that you shock people with the most? <laughs> That's cr- shock people. Wow. Um, and what surprises them in, in your class? We, I mean, the anatomy and physiology of the female body in labor is pretty shocking. Uh. That's where we start, Amen you know, that. that's the foundation <laughs> upon which we build everything. You know, at the end of that first class, we've gone through the stages of labor. We've talked about what contractions do, what the uterus is, the placenta, you know, they, it's, it makes me look really good. They really don't know that much. So right. I get to look fantastic in front of them because <laughs> it's just amazing. It's phenomenal. I mean, they, they go home and I said, you're going to be at the water cooler this next week between class saying, did you know this? Did you know this? So just the fact that we grow up in a culture that doesn't understand what the body's doing, what it's yeah. capable of, it's, it's just mind boggling. Mm. So I would say that's pretty surprising. Um, when it gets to breastfeeding, oh my gosh, then we're off the charts. <laughs> because we just grow up with breasts being primarily sexual in nature. Yeah. That's our culture. And what they're capable of, the what your body can do to warm babies, cool babies. I mean, their yeah. jaws just drop when they learn those types of things. Yeah, you, you remind me about the mystery of breastfeeding. Because it's so easy when you do this day after day to kind of take it for granted. Mm-hmm. But if you just pause a minute oh. and think about it, a, a part of your body that you probably had never really considered much no. before um, suddenly is responsible for feeding another human being. And keeping them alive. That's bizarre. It is bizarre. Yeah. One of my favorite book titles is, uh, So That's What They're For. <laughs> <laughs> because it's true. Now, that's a good point that that I think many would say, breastfeeding, I mean, you know, you have one on each side, they fill up with milk, you put the baby on it. Why do I need instruction yeah. in breastfeeding? It's a great question. We are not a culture of being exposed to breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. We're not even really a culture that supports breastfeeding. I mean, it's taken a long time to have laws in states that allow women to breastfeed wherever they're allowed to be. It's just not what we do. And because our women's bodies are primarily used to sell product. <laughs> right. So it's a huge shift to, yeah. to understand how it works. And but, we all hear the worst case scenario stories. But but are there skills, I'm going to ask this in a leading way, mm. you know, are there skills that one has to learn to be successful at breastfeeding? I would say not, maybe a little bit. Mm-hmm. Positioning and holding a baby in a way that doesn't... Uh, trigger some of their natural responses uh, to go yeah. against, you know, coming close yeah. to you. There's a little bit about holding and positioning. Yes. Um, taking a breast that's very large and full of milk and sort of shaping it to something that's smaller, that has more capacity for a good deep latch. So yes, yeah. there are some, some specifics that can and, be. Like and that. I think about the very first thing you said was our culture doesn't mm-hmm. support it. So Mm-mm. as I think about two, three, ten generations ago, there would have been entire communities of women breastfeeding, and every young girl would have grown up watching latch, watching problem solving. You yeah. know, baby's fussy, won't And living latch. next to them. Yeah. Living with them. And being taught what to do, even if they weren't being taught formally. 
And and we've lost that in culture. Now, now we we create pods for women to go hide to breastfeed. Yep. It's hard for young girls to learn when the women no. are hidden. And then um, bring in and mix in the male component. Yeah. We talk a lot about, you know, again, women's bodies are used to sell things, but men have absolutely no concept of what women's bodies are going to be doing when they're breastfeeding. And then we tell them and they come into my class and they say, well, I really want to be supportive. Yeah. But they have no idea what it even looks <laughs> like. They don't know. Yeah. I tell people in breastfeeding class, this is important for them to understand is, you know, dad say, the question is like, what does support look like? So we try to outline that and lay it uh, out. And I said, part of what the support really needs to be is physically being present at those beginning feedings. Mm. Because yes, mom has the breast. Yes, she's making the milk. But you are equally ignorant about mm. what is happening. You cannot assume dads forget. They think, oh, well, she has the breast. She knows what's going on. No, she doesn't. <laughs> she's going to look down and be like, I don't know. What do you think? And he's going to go, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. So you have to have that unity, that support, that family system that's both been mm. educated so that they know how do I know my baby's getting enough? How yeah. do I know what a good latch looks like? I think I learned early on in my career that you could you could often predict a woman's success at breastfeeding by simply asking her if her mother breastfed and how did it go? Mm. Because if her mother's around and had a negative experience, that's you're already fighting an uphill yeah. battle. But yet on the other hand, if the mother had a great experience and she's supportive, she's going to be right there coaching and encouraging and helping both of them you know, be supportive of this venture, which is kind of scary at first. It is very scary. You talked about it being responsible to keeping a human alive yeah. when you've never done it before. <laughs> I have a whole class, part portion of my breastfeeding class that's about grandmothers. Well, sometimes grandmas come to class, but we yeah. have to be careful when they're in <laughs> yeah. the group. But grandmothers in general can be a even even when they have been very pro breastfeeding and very breastfeeding their own can children, they can be a challenge. We yeah. love grandmothers, especially <laughs> now that I'm a grandparent. But but you're right. <laughs> That's true. But I think maybe I could sum up the answer to my own question. You need instruction today, yeah, because of our culture. Yes. That's, when you look at the missing. statistics, and we, I start off class also. One of my first questions is, "Why are you here?" Because you 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 look at the statistics of. First of all, how important breastfeeding is and everything we know about the importance and benefits to mom and baby, but then what our numbers actually yeah, are. Right. And they're they're horrific. Sure. So you're here because and I think I tell them in class the two main things I think you need to to change these numbers for your own family is number one, education, number two, support. And we start off the class with that support. I think that's the problem beyond education is that they go home and there they are mm. and they don't know who to call, when to call, what to call about. So those are the two pieces that I think breastfeeding families need a class for, for sure. That's, that's fascinating. I couldn't agree. And, I, and I'll and i plug your classes. I mean, I, I think <laughs> it's fair to say, at least based on my experience of talking to people, that your breastfeeding class is absolutely world-class. Mm. And it is not easy to get good breastfeeding mm -hmm. education. No. It's I, just not. I don't tend to, to get too wrapped up in, in that. But I'm going to tell you, we just spent the last four and a half, five months, reworking our curriculum, diving deep into everything. And I can't, and it's a three hour long class. And mm. we, I mean, I just can't imagine anything that can be as comprehensive as that. We're really, really proud of that class. The worst thing that would happen to you is you come away knowing a great deal more mm -hmm. about the physiology and the anatomy and the psychology of breastfeeding. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. And then you can start from a place of confidence and knowledge. And then I feel the same way I do about breastfeeding that I do about birth. Where that family takes it is their decision. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just want to make sure that if they've if they're considering it and they want to look into it seriously, that they feel that they've got everything they can mm-hmm. to start off from a good place. Well, if we if we redirect ourselves back sort of to uh, birth, birth preparation, um, you know, whether it's natural birth or otherwise, but, but it's fair to say that natural birth often requires more preparation and more training and more education. And I would argue because of the fear factor. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I thought of it, but I like to pretend that I thought of it, that, <laughs> that fear is the greatest enemy of natural birth. Mm. And the, the best antidote to fear is knowledge. And I think that's what professional childbirth education from a company like Birth Matters offers is knowledge, not just data. Google gives you data. That's right. <laughs> but you need, you, know, you need knowledge. But you know, much is said in today's popular culture using sort of the word empowerment and I, I like to show a beautiful video of one of our patients giving birth at the birth center. I say, this is what knowledgeable, fearless, empowered birth looks like. Mm-hmm. But as the educator, when you think about uh, empowerment in relation to birth and birth preparation, what, is that, what does that mean to you? I center that in my teaching and in my own personal belief on what we've hit a little bit about, which is informed consent and informed refusal. Mm. I think that the the families who have found the provider that's going to match that and allow that and facilitate that and be invested in that are going to come away with a sense of empowerment mm-hmm. no matter what the outcome. Because that process is the process that helps them understand. We talk about the, you know, that veering off of an, of an, a low intervention, low risk experience. And every intervention that can surface or become a conversation point is intended to, you know, right the ship and keep it kind of in that, in that range of low intervention. And Mm. sometimes we can do those things and sometimes we can't. Um, And so it's important for, Something as simple as, and this is the example I use in class, so you, you talked about it before, with someone walking into a room saying, it's time to break your bag of waters. <laughs> you think, wow, well, there are about, I'm going to overestimate, 15 different ways you can go, different pathways off of breaking someone's bag of waters. Many of them good, many of them intended to maybe solve a problem that you're facing, but some of them that, that end up pushing you further towards another intervention. Mm-hmm. And if a family doesn't understand in that moment of deciding something that seems so simple, particularly if it's portrayed in that way, yeah. this is just what everybody does, and now it's your turn. They can end up on one of those, you know, red line pathways to high intervention, even to the end of maybe a cesarean delivery and think, what in the world happened? How did we get here? Yeah. We certainly didn't feel like we participated in getting here. And then I've seen the other happen, which is families who make an informed decision uh, with their providers to attempt to manage things that are arising that no one really can control can end up having that cesarean delivery and say, we know exactly how we got here. We participated in making our best decisions and getting here. And we really feel like this was the birth that was intended to happen. Yeah. I think it's the classic example of the destination is not as important as the journey sometimes, depending on how you got there. Because certainly in my role as the physician, which is sometimes a little bit of the bad guy um, because I'm called when the midwives need my set of skills, which, you know, like it or not often means cesarean birth. Yeah. Um, 
that's not the time to be trying to establish trust. And, you know, they'll, families would, would look at me and say, well, we don't think it's an emergency. And I'm thinking, wow, this is, it's sad we got here mm-hmm. because we shouldn't be having this talk now. Right. We should have been talking 10 months ago about yep. what kind of person are you? What do you value? Right. Uh, these sorts of things. Because personally, I don't think of myself as low intervention. I think of myself as appropriately interventional. Mm. I mean, sometimes I make a big incision in a woman's belly. That's pretty darn interventional. That's true. But it ought to be an appropriate intervention. Yes. And I think a risk that I sometimes see in the birth education community is all intervention is bad. Yes. Um, which would be like saying all food is bad. Yeah. You know, it depends, doesn't it? It depends on the reason, the circumstances, the informed consent. But certainly intervention for the sake of intervention is not good. No. But it's not all bad. No. My word is routine. That's mm. the word that ruffles my feathers. And I tell that to families. It's not the interventions that I inherently define as good or bad. Uh-huh. It's when they're routinely used. That's not applying to your specific birth circumstances and situation. Yeah. And if I were thinking of questions to ask prospective providers, you might say almost as a trick, tell me what interventions do you do routinely? It's mm. <laughs> a good question. And then listen. You know, yes. Um, I also in, encourage families when they're interviewing providers to be careful about very specific individualized questions on a one tiny little pinpoint of a topic. Mm-hmm. Really feel like you get a better vision for them when you let them talk. And so if you ask an overarching kind of umbrella question, you'll get a sense of really who they are. So instead of saying, you know, do you if you get really aggressive, you know, do, do you make women push on their back? Yeah. You know, something yeah. like what position are women in? You've kind of given away your hand a little bit to say, can you tell me what happens when a woman's fully dilated and it's time to push? <laughs> and just let them narrate for you unfettered. And you really get it. It's another way to get a sense of how they, how they practice, who they are. Yeah, I, I like that example. I think another one I thought of just listening to you is uh, tell me about your last and then fill in the blank. Mm. You know, so if you're very interested in natural birth, mm-hmm. tell me about your last natural birth. Mm-hmm. If you're interested in a VBAC or a vaginal birth after cesarean, tell me about the last VBAC that you attended. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, if, you know, I think about a question when I was interviewing, tell me about the last book you read. Well, if you can't think of one, <laughs> that tells the interviewer a lot. If you ask somebody about their last natural birth and you're interested in that and they can't think of one, that's a problem. Yeah, that's another good question. One other one that I throw out at families for them to consider if they do have a specific question once they've heard that overarching response is to understand the frequency of something, how often something might happen. And you can't really get, even in all fairness, sometimes it's hard for a provider to know how often I do X. Mm. So I'll encourage families to whittle it down and say, out of 10 times, 10 unmedicated or 10 healthy or 10 uncomplicated, whatever you want to put in that, whatever your vision is, yeah. how often do you see this needing to happen? Yeah. Forceps, we, vacuum, right. pitocin, you know, C-section. anything. Yeah, when, yeah. Uh, 10 pregnancies and labors in, that look like mine. Yeah. How often out of 10 times do you see that happening? I and like I that. feel like they can make a good guess that will give you a little information. Yeah, that's a great statistic to track. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we take care of a lot of distance patients uh, for their fertility needs. And so they may live five states away. And then, you know, God willing, they become pregnant. Well, then they'll ask us, how do I pick a provider here in South Florida or in South Dakota? 
And some of the things I like to say to them is, you know, ask them how they feel about your birth preferences. Yeah. You know, if their agenda is to get you your agenda, that's a good sign. Yeah. Uh, because in reality, if I were designing the, the perfect provider team, first I would make it a team. Yeah. I wouldn't make it one person because then you're at one case of flu away from not having your person. But I'd make it a team. And you want a team that values your views and and feels good badly if you don't get what you're looking for. Yeah. And you also want a team that if the stuff hits the fan, they're very, very good. Yeah. You know, so in our physician midwife model, that's what we like to say to patients. You want one of our midwives patiently sitting on the foot of your bed and you want me pacing around nervously in the hall. If you put <laughs> us together, you have a good team, but it does take a team. It does. Uh, because it's rare to find all of those skills no. in one person. And then you don't want to invest all of your eggs. Uh, in sort of that one provider basket. No, I think that's fantastic. Well, as as we start to bring this terrific discussion to a close, it, I can think of a couple of big takeaways. Um, and I'll steal from you for my first one. Words matter. Mm-hmm. So uh, providers especially, whether you're a doula or a nurse or a midwife or a physician, try to remember the things that, that yeah. come out of your mouth matter. Yeah. Your turn. I want to take that and piggyback on it, which is I want families to listen to the words that they're actually hearing and and trust that that's what you're actually hearing and, and, and act on it. Meaning if you're with a provider who's using words that make you feel uncomfortable or uh, not heard or uh, just maybe even blatantly disrespected in your birth preferences or right. your visions or your desires, you need to trust that. You need to make decisions based on that yeah. and find the place where you don't feel that way. And you can absolutely switch providers. I've had families come to my class in the third trimester all the time and say, wow, I didn't realize I'm hearing what we're talking about, what we're learning about. I didn't know that these were options or choices. Can I switch? You absolutely need to listen to the words that people are using and and bank on that and find someone who uses the words that make you feel supported. Because words matter, as we said. That's right. Run, don't walk to the nearest exit. Correct. Uh, And then maybe the last one I would say is uh, birth experience matters. Mm -hmm. It's not fluff. No. Uh, It it actually matters. Um, And and we need to know that. Patients need to know that. And we need, as a team, to work towards that goal commonly. Absolutely agree. And professional education like yours is one of the, if not the most important thing, I would argue, uh, to achieving that ends. I think it's one of the puzzle pieces for sure. And um, and it helps align with all those other team members. You know, I really don't want to overstep my, my bounds, but I know my lane and I want to <laughs> stay in my lane and do the best I can in my lane and then have them working with other people who fill in that rest of that really, really beautiful puzzle. Well, I know anyone listening is already convinced that you do exactly that and much, much more. Uh, So thanks for joining me. It's been a great discussion. I look forward to the next one. Thank you so much. Well, that'll have to bring us to a close for this episode of All Things Women's Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud. It's been a blast uh, spending this time with you and with our guest. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll share the podcast with your friends. I'll be back soon with another episode of All Things Women's Health. May God bless you and Mary keep you. Thank you.